AI is a tool, and if you're a, a sculptor and you use a chisel, you know, you have a better chisel, you're gonna make better art, but the chisel's not gonna replace the artist. Today's episode is with Alan Bondi, and I had some um, opportunity and time with him uh, during the year's B2B Connect in Chicago. Alan is uh, just recently joined uh, TreviPay uh, as CMO. Uh, TreviPay is a global uh, company with almost 40 years of experience in B2B uh, payments, expanding internationally now. Uh, they believe that uh, loyalty begins with the payment, uh, which is an interesting perspective. And Alan had a variety of roles over the last uh, 30 years uh, with uh, different, different companies. Uh, he started as an engineer, has a uh, degree and some background in AI, uh, and um, it was a very it was a very insightful conversation, which, which uh, you know, <laughs> where we discussed the the current state and future states of marketing, uh, the influence of AI, and also the perspective of uh, such an interesting company as TreviPay on composability, on uh, the future of composable commerce, on how to uh, sell it right to the different personas, uh, and um, of course also Alan's uh, interesting perspectives which he brought along from his time being a VP and research director at uh, Forrester for three years. Uh, so this is a very interesting um, and a very interesting conversation uh, which, which uh, we recorded together. So um, let's go. So let's start with uh, your personal uh, background story. Uh, I learned uh, in the prep that you know you had quite some interesting experiences. So, so uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> so I, I'm an engineer turned consultant turned marketer, but I was a data scientist for a little while. Um, to me, it is about data, especially as a marketer. But I've had some all sorts of adventures, a few startups, a couple exits. Experienced at some big companies like McKinsey and OpenText, and uh, recently joined TreviPay after having them as my client at Forrester. So uh, I cool. sort of have come home to TreviPay, if you will, after lots of other adventures. I, ha I have to ask you about how marketing changed in your point of view, especially when you say you know you're a data data person. Like if you compare marketing nowadays from marketing ten years ago, so what is uh, what is your view so so even further back right people thought of marketing often as a brand building exercise first mm -hmm. i'd say that it's much more of a demand centric role now especially as a cmo and mm -hmm. especially looking at the data on uh, the average tenure of a cmo is yeah. what a couple of years so i think there's a lot of pressure to produce demand gen in this role but also Hopefully that, that both brand and demand, when people ask me, what does the CMO do? It's about brand and demand. Mm -hmm. So we need to be visible, but also we need to create engagement and create um, Actual. conversations, right? This is, yeah. this is very, I'd, I'd say that marketing now, even though it's so digital, I like to think it's becoming more analog again. Like mm -hmm. we're at an event, yeah. right? Uh, we're not interacting via uh, a paid campaign. We're actually having conversations that yeah. I think I've been a bit of a contrarian that I think marketers need to think about how they can be more analog, mm -hmm. even while, of course, we're doing things with digital. 
And are you rather in the AI will disrupt marketing camp or are you rather in the AI? So <laughs> I have to, uh, I have, where, I have where to do ask. you want to start? So, <laughs> so having spent enough time, you know, with some, you know, AI tools and, and fundamental algorithms, I think AI is a tool. This is my point of view and I'm going to stick with it, that mm -hmm. AI is a tool. And if marketers need tools and we have lots of tools in marketing, AI will help, mm -hmm. whether it's in targeting campaigns or writing copy or whatever, but I, I can't see AI replacing marketing, but rather it's a tool. Mm -hmm. And if you're a, a sculptor and you use a chisel, yeah. you know, you have a better chisel, you're going to make better art, <laughs> but the chisel's not going to replace the artist. Right, right. Mostly. Yeah. This is very in line with uh, my statement yesterday during my keynote when I said that AI will not, you know, replace your job, but the person, you know, knowing how to use these tools probably will. Uh, so this so is it's as, as good or bad of a tool as you want it to be. Yeah. But I think there are certain functions that are at risk mm -hmm. of being replaced by tools the same way that if you're, you know, using tools that automate, well, there's something that used to be manual. Yeah. But I think it, it's, it's shocking that we think of AI being a new thing when really it's been around as a discipline for 75 years. Yeah. So it's not a new thing, but people are treating it sort of as if it's new. Yeah. But I encourage people to read the history books and go back to the Dartmouth AI you know, conference in the mid 50s and see what was going on then and be inspired that, wait, actually this has been going on for a while. So it's okay, that, the bots aren't taking over the world I think yet. It, I think in general, like in technology, it all comes and goes in, in waves, right? So it's surprising how like, how technology is, uh, you know, uh, it runs in generations, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there's been multiple sort of hype cycles with AI, and then despair cycles when it's not going to work, and then hype. We're definitely in a hype cycle, but probably like the fourth or fifth hype cycle for yeah. AI, arguably. Let's talk a little bit about Trevi Pay. So, so, so tell us um, what is Trevi Pay doing? Who is your ideal customer profile? Sure. You know, who are you? Who are you setting to? Are there any? Is there any focus on certain industries, verticals, uh, sectors? So what's interesting is TreviPay has been around for 40 years, but it's kind of a company that no one's heard of because a lot of what we do is behind the scenes mm -hmm. of some really big brands. And at the top level, it's um, a global B2B payments and invoicing network. And what does that mean? It's a tech company that also has services, that also has funding. So we can mm -hmm. underwrite, we can provide funding to buyers working with sellers, but ultimately, you know, we're working with the merchants or the sellers, whether it's a Staples or whether it's a Best Buy or whether it's a, a manufacturing company like General Motors. Right. But we're helping them provide pretty much, and we'll get into this with Composable, like more choice, more convenience in terms of buying options. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the clients are global and they're looking to expand into new markets. So mm -hmm. we operate in 32 or so countries so we can help people do commerce more broadly than maybe their footprint is. But also there's an automation play back to AI. I mean, we right. have AI that do that does things like helping to approve people in, you know, for credit in 30 seconds or 60 seconds. Right. And so part of it is also the automation benefit of a lot of companies that we work with are doing this in-house. Mm -hmm. And we can be a partner and take part of that sort of off their books, so to speak, and be a partner where we're helping them with kind of the order to cash process. That's our sweet spot, right? Mm -hmm. Digital transformation broadly. Right. But also what's happening between the getting the order and um, getting the payment. And, and from a business value perspective, so when you, are, when you are speaking to your client, so what is it that you kind of pitch on, right? So what, what's, the, what's the key 
promise was the key value problem. So, so this is my favorite part as a marketer because <clears throat> it's a relatively complex business given all the things that we do. But also, I've tried to boil it down to like a belief statement. Mm -hmm. I'm a believe in the, believer in the Simon Sinek start with why. Like, why do we mm -hmm. exist? And um, our, our opening statement is top level. We believe that loyalty begins at the payment. And what does that mean is once you start to create this relationship, providing choice, providing convenience is the starting point mm -hmm. for having... I guess, a sustainable relationship with your buyers. Right. And there's lots of data that says when you have more options, like different types of terms to pay or different options in the invoicing formats, that that leads to larger order value or mm -hmm. more lifetime value. And so the pitch really is if you're focused on loyalty or growing your business, which is pretty much everybody, right. then they need to think about what choice they're offering in terms of payments. And then we can help them provide more choice or in fact, in the case of if they're already doing a lot of this in-house, it's probably not core to their business. So then it gets into more of like an outsourcing argument of, mm -hmm. actually, we're expert at this. If you're selling trucks or you're selling computers, you're probably not really wanting to be best in class in that. We can take that off your books. Right. But that's, but that's for different industries, too. And that, that brings up like where do we focus? Big manufacturers big transport companies, big retailers, mm -hmm. where it's complex and there's a lot of distribution, those mm -hmm. are our best prospects. And, and like people are, I guess, very familiar with, <clears throat> with payment, you know, payment service companies, right? Yes. So, so, so uh, walk us maybe through the main kind of difference in B2B payments, right? Which, which is the category you, you are focusing on versus the normal, you know, PSP for B2C stuff, right? Sure. Which everyone knows. So, so where, where's the complexity from a technology point of view or from a, you know, go-to-market point of view. So it's interesting because mm -hmm. when when I joined Trevi Pay, and our son was like, who's, who's in finance, so he kind of knows, and, and and I started describing what Trevi Pay does, and he said, oh, so like PayPal, but for businesses. Mm -hmm. I'm like, huh, that's actually an interesting way to think. It's, it oversimplifies it, but mm -hmm. I think it creates good contrast with what's needed on the consumer side versus what's needed on the business side, where there's a lot of complexity around um, what types of terms you want or what types of options or better service or better rates that you give to better clients. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot more dimensionality, mm -hmm. I, thought, I think, on the business side, not to mention the fact that um, if you look at what business buyers prefer, many of them either don't want to or can't pay on a card, mm -hmm. although we, we support that. So if people want right. to pay with a card, great, right. but bigger ticket purchases or more accounts expect to have special terms because they're a frequent buyer. And that's where it sort of becomes very different than consumer payments where the expectation is I'm paying on some terms, I get set up with a credit limit. Mm -hmm. You know, that can be $10,000, that can be $2 right. million. Right. There's a lot of variability, I think, in B2B, as you know. Yeah. And that complexity is hard for people to deal with in-house, but also there's a lot of people who sort of play in our space, but. Many of them we view as more specialists as opposed to um, we're more of a generalist that way. And, and, and how does a typical conversation uh, uh, go with, 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 a, with a client? Is it demand driven? And people come to you and say, Ellen, look, you know, this, this, you know, we need to, to, automate, uh, to automate and, you know, these are our requirements and can you guys do this and that? So or, is it, or, or is it more like reverse engineering from the business objectives where they come to you and say, look, you know, we need to enable this and that and this is our business goal. And then you guys come up and say, yeah, we have a tool for this and we have a tool for that. So, so of course, the answer is both. Mm -hmm. And it depends on the audience. And I think, um, so last week I was at an event that was 
really focus on digital transformation. If you're talking to executives that are leading a like a broad transformation effort, yeah. it's very easy to talk about where they're focusing, what their priorities are, what they'd like to automate. And then we just sort of say, okay, within your list of priorities, what are you thinking in terms of this order to cash process? Mm -hmm. And let's talk about if that's a focus, that's what we do. We don't do all transformation, but we do that. Mm -hmm. So that's one scenario where there's a very directed initiative, usually sponsored by a C-level. Yeah. You know, it might be a finance person, it may be more of a business process person, often it's a consultancy mm -hmm. that's doing that. In that case, it's very driven by the initiative and the priority. The mm -hmm. opposite case would be their strategy is we are mostly a consumer company, whether it's a retailer or another business that's trying to get greater share of a business buyer. And so they have a very functional need to say, okay, these new business buyers, what do they want? Okay, they're not gonna really wanna pay on a card. They're going to expect flexible terms. They're mm -hmm. gonna to expect to get an invoice that has all sorts of very custom fields in it. Mm -hmm. They're looking for a solution. And in that case, it's more driven by functional requirements. But mm -hmm. I think that's either, so there's a top-down conversation right. or more of a bottom-up conversation, which is probably the case in your business as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, is it strategic and you're grabbing a section of it or is it tactical and you're saying, actually, here's the shortest path to fulfilling this need, which is we need to sell to a business audience that expects a different payment experience. For us, it's almost always the more strategic level, right? So it, 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 it's because pretty much like well, what you said. Well, by the way, I like that having been a management consultant. I, I love having the strategic conversation, absolutely. but you're not always able to sort of reach that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the good thing is, is when when you are part of a digital transformation, you know, agenda, right? Then you are perceived differently. Then you're perceived more as a partner, right? And as a, you could even say stakeholder in a way, and not as a vendor, right? Then you're also exposed automatically, or either either you are exposed or you help to get to the actual, you know, business objectives, right? So it's a much more business objective, use case driven discussion, which then. You know, you start to reverse engineer backwards to requirements, and not yes. the other way. The other way up, where someone like the the extreme example is, you know, someone sends you an RFP. You know, you can't challenge it, right? You nobody talks to you. Uh, you look into this Excel spreadsheet. It's you know, full full of nonsense, right? Things which done, you know, copy pasted from wherever just don't make any sense, right? And then and then you end up bidding on this, right? So this is not where we would typically play, right? So typically, you know, uh, for for our ICP, which is which is. Uh, you know, what we call sophisticated commerce, right? Um, um, primarily sitting within manufacturing, it, it's always part of larger digital and transformation agendas and programs. And then people need typically help to break it down and reverse engineer sure. into actual initiatives. Well, and there's, there's power in being part of that conversation. And that's my preference, right? As, yeah. as if I put on my consulting hat, yeah. um, going through that discovery really talking through what the top level objectives are, but often that's about priorities, right? They have, a, they have a long list where we're meeting with the head of transformation for a big global company last week, and they had identified 80 priorities. I'm yeah. like, wait a minute, 80? How can you have 80 priorities? But yeah. then you start to talk and you realize that there's actually a much smaller set. And some of those which were a great fit was looking at internal processes like the fact that they did a lot of this in-house yeah. and how could they start moving that to an outside provider, which becomes kind of a classic outsourcing pitch, mm -hmm. which I quite like because there's clarity of purpose in that. We do this function, we understand it, but we'd rather not do it. Yeah. Right. That's that's great if you can The problem with these conversations is for many people, and uh, in, in, in the reason why they are hiding and shying away from, from those is once you start having you know this type of conversations, you automatically accept 
a certain degree of accountability over the outcomes, of right? Of course. And this is like obviously, you know, not something people uh, and many vendors don't just don't like it, right? So it's much easier to say, hey, look, you know, I sold you this feature list, right? This is it. My accountability stops exactly at this extra spreadsheet. If, if you're in it for sure, the short-term gain, I think this is this is a philosophy, right? That, exactly. That if you can play the long game, and yeah. I think that just, I mean, back to my my career arc, mm-hmm. I have had to learn that, right? I mean, I've been I've run marketing for high velocity, you know, 14 day sales cycle, you know, really churning through leads and opportunities and everything was, you know, monthly subscriptions and people would come in and then they would go out. There's a, there's a certain excitement in that type of business, but it's not very satisfying. If you're in, in the long game and you look at the tenure, like of some of the Trevi pay clients who've Mm -hmm. been with us for like a decade or two decades, if you can play that long game, Mm -hmm. then you're building a durable business, but also your proper partner, which That's not always the case, but I would love that to be the case. Let's talk a little bit about composable cameras. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I need to pick your brain here as a former, you know, analyst. Uh, so explain composable cameras in your words. Um, uh, share maybe some of the analogies and examples sure. uh, you are using. And most importantly, what are the key benefits? <clears throat> so to me, and this is back to, well, when I was a kid, but also I'm always... I think of myself as a kid still. Like to me, it, it's it's a Lego set, and you know, being able to assemble whatever you're trying to build from those Lego bricks to me is a simple way to think about composable commerce. And there's you know now Lego sets are incredibly complex with all the different. But back in the day, there were just a few shapes. Yeah. And to me, composable is being able to create that solution fit to that outcome that you want, mm-hmm. and with just the stuff that you need without a lot of extra baggage. And to me, legacy you know, monoliths, as my friend and yeah. former colleague Joe Sisman would say, you know, with a monolithic approach, you get a lot of extra stuff that maybe you need, but maybe you don't need it. But it's sort of like building your model with every brick in the box, as opposed to picking the bricks that you just want to create that model. And composable to me is that flexibility to be able to assemble sort of using building blocks. But it's it's something that I've always thought about when I started as a coder. It's like, why would you write everything long? You, you use objects or modules but you snap it together into what you need but then it also has some future proofing Mm because things always change there's no like we've launched it it's done right there's always things that you want to turn on and off and to me composable has that benefit of time to value in terms of creating the solution but also an element of future proofing when you're like no no that module has to change you're like oh that's okay because you're not stuck with what was basically in the box. That's and, kind of my non-technical answer. And, and, and what are some of the downsides uh, of composable cameras? Because like, you know, we all like talk, just talking about, 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 about uh, the advantages, right, for a customer, but there are obviously also downsides or risks or challenges. So, so what, are, what are some? Which so you... I will argue, and, and, you know, back in the day, I worked with and I've had, you know, all the big vendors, the SAPs and Oracles of the world as my clients and hung out at their events and got to know their clients. If there's a downside of composable is if if you're in an industry that is very um, sort of process driven or there's established sort of benchmarks or blueprints Mm -hmm. that not all of the modern composable solutions have that institutional knowledge built into them. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is exactly the right answer, but Mm -hmm. I would say that there's some industries that don't change very quickly Mm -hmm. where there's value in the sort of expertise that's been encapsulated in some of those bigger solutions right. and not all the composable solutions have that sort of built into them. So you have to sort of find this middle ground between 
what's a process that doesn't really change versus something that could change. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one of the potential risks, although I've kind of been all in on the composable idea, yeah. having started as a coder. So technically it makes a lot of sense. Business process-wise, it mostly makes sense. The only downside I think would be where there's still solutions that are still waiting to be infused with some of that best practice and all, but that just comes from the consultancies. Right. So I think that's, I don't know if that's a downside or just something that is still to happen in some of the composable solutions. And do you think that every company should go down this composable commerce route or, or you know, when, when, when are there any, are there any uh, um, rules or any uh, preconditions which, which you would see? So I'll, I'll answer that. Or are there companies where you would, you know, who you would clearly uh, consult not not to do it or not to do it yet or to you know first first get the so i mean i'll them. answer it in a different way because if i go back to what i think sort of our mission is if you believe in the power of choice mm -hmm. if you be believe in the power of shortening time to value and convenience which is like a value for your ultimate your customers buyers because mm -hmm. we're in business to help our clients sell more stuff right. generally and drive loyalty mm -hmm. um I think, I think if that's important to your value and, or if you're in markets that are very dynamic, of course you'd want to take this path. Mm -hmm. If you're in a market, you're, you're a monopoly or you're, you know, your business doesn't change very quickly, maybe it's harder to think about that. But for most of this, I mean, we, we have a common interest in complex, right. sophisticated commerce in, in some cases, traditional businesses that are digitizing and they need to catch up in some cases, mm -hmm. of course the shortest path would be composable. Mm -hmm. Of course. Right. And um, in, 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 the prep, in the prep talk we had uh, before we started recording, you, you said something I liked a lot, uh, that you know, the, the, the ultimate alignment of interest uh, or alignment with the business objectives of the customer uh, is the guys obviously you know, have a business model, a commercial model, a pricing, which is tightly <laughs> related to the customer actually having transactions, right? Yes. So, which is great. Um, is there anything else like in terms of like teams or setup or how you, you know, help the customer along, along, along the journey to, to really get them to the outcomes? Is there like any business consulting, customer success? Uh, because I guess there is more than just connecting to the APIs, right? Correct. Uh, and, and this is interesting because as I get to know our customer base, but I think back of all the sort of larger projects I've worked on, there's, there's absolutely an onboarding that happens. And some of that is change management. Some of it is education. Some of it is, you know, having the old way sort of transition to the new way. Mm -hmm. And there's a process of getting people, you know, to the digital model or, I mean, this, this happens, especially in areas like marketplaces, right? Which in some cases is threatening to traditional distribution relationships. We saw yeah. this a lot, mm -hmm. right? So my team at Forrester launched the B2B marketplaces coverage a few years back. And we see this in areas where you have to change behaviors, whether mm -hmm. it's the behavior of salespeople or behavior of channel partners. So part of what we do absolutely is orchestrating that onboarding, especially where we're working with businesses that have a big existing spend, mm -hmm. sort of what we call brownfield, and we start to, we, we need to move that over into the Trevi Pay platform, and that doesn't happen instantly. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's moving that spend over, but also educating the community that there's goodies in it for them, right, when they start to transact that way. And if you're a mm -hmm. salesperson that 
and I hear this from a few accounts, that there is some change management that has to happen. So you have to think about presenting that vision of like the new world will look like this and this is good for you. So yeah. get on board as opposed to people who are like, no, 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 I like these relationships, especially where we may take over. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's somewhat unique about TreviPay is this white label play mm-hmm. that we're in the background. It doesn't say TreviPay, but we're acting on behalf of those oh. merchants or their sellers. Mm-hmm. And so when they're working with our technology or they're actually working with our um, account teams, they may be talking to us, but we're representing the client. So there's mm. that. That's sometimes a big yeah. change. Are, are you covering the enterprise marketplace uh, model? So this is a growth area for us. Mm-hmm. So so yes, and to us, it's just an extension. I mean, this is sort of my party line back to Forrester. Is mm-hmm. it's another channel. It's another modality. And if this makes sense in a manufacturing setting where there's buyers and sellers, and the host of the marketplace is um, offering the widest choice of purchasing, you know, payment, payment options. Right. Yeah. A marketplace is just one flavor of a digital commerce experience. So, so hundred percent, but also I think our best prospect is where there's already, whether they call it or not a marketplace, but there is this network of buyers and sellers that we can be a party to, and we can make that more frictionless by offering either more payment options or, outsourcing or automating some of the receivables or even taking the risk out where, you know, we pay the seller and then we take the risk in terms of collecting. I mean, those are all things that we do on behalf of not all of our clients, but typically for some of them. And when you bring together your clients to exchange uh, best practices yes. right, and, and, and success stories, um, what do you see? Is it, is it mostly like customers inspiring each other about, hey, what else they can do or how else they can solve it or that they should do things at all? Right. So, so what type? Just, 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 just share with us. So, so what type of conversations do they do they have? So this is very complaining timely. to so, each other. <laughs> you know, we've and I did this in my SaaS startup days. Right, is having a client community. I'm sure you have the same thing. Right, sure. getting getting a group of your leaders or client leaders together for networking and sharing and sort of a group therapy session at times. It's really important mm-hmm. and. We, we just convened our version of that, what we're calling our MVPs. It's a dozen of our client leaders. And so in the kickoff meeting, we just sort of asked them, like, what, what are your goals for this? So, mm-hmm. so we just asked them. Right. And pretty consistently, one is, like, what's the range of things that we could be doing with your platform? I'm sure your mm-hmm. customers say the same thing as, like, sure. we started here, but what really should we be doing? Well, what's yeah. possible? So I think that the art of the possible is what these communities are really interested in because mm-hmm. they may be started with very specific use cases. Yeah. They just don't know what's possible. The other thing that came up was back to how do we change behaviors? How do we market the benefits of what you're doing so, so more buyers join the network or more sellers, if it's a marketplace, join the network? Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea of like how do you market even within the platform is fascinating to me right. because no adoption, <laughs> yeah. then no transaction, no transactions, it's, it's, it's not going to be a, a successful partnership. Right. So I think to those those two dimensions are really interesting. What what should they do next? Which is almost a consultative thing. Like, yeah. what's your vision look like? And you, you started here, where should you go? The other one is how do we change behaviors at scale, especially for businesses that are complex, that are multinational, all those things, where there's even cultural challenges of how people pay, which varies by geography, right? Yeah. Some countries, it's, it's a cash society. Some, it's credit cards. Some, we don't want to use credit cards. Some credit, yeah. you know... Terms is expected, some it's different. So I think really being aware of all those those dimensions, I think that's that's what a group of 
clients really will learn from each other. And after conducting these initial interviews with clients, is there any, so, so are you following up on the objectives which, which have been discussed? So is your, like, is it, like, for example, your customer success team, so are they tracking, hey, you know, customer A, you know, during the interview, they said they want to do ABC and the, the KPI, the measurable outcome, which we discussed should be this and that. And now, you know, we are six months, 12 months, 24 months into the relationship and they achieved it, they did not achieve it, you know, it goes well, it doesn't go well. Uh, so so that's, that's a good example because that's really the role of the account managers, you know, working with the accounts, but also working across them. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because of the, oh, another thing that came up in this first meeting with our MVPs was benchmarking. Mm -hmm. And so within my sector, how are we doing? Mm -hmm. or, or compared to other industries? Mm -hmm. So I think there's both the kind of day-to-day, -day, you know, account management, function, which, you know, in the SaaS world is customer success and more of the services world is account management. Um, over time, though, I would love us, especially working with partners, to create benchmarks. Mm -hmm. So like within manufacturing or this sector of manufacturing, here's the expected benchmarks for yeah. whatever, for spend or for, you know, how do you move from point A to point B? I think we can do a lot as an industry to do more of those benchmarks. And I know analyst firms do it in some of the benchmarks. Even some simple forms of gamification sometimes, right? Uh, just telling, hey, you know, uh, companies in your space, you know, they're doing this and this better. Uh, this, this like, like what does success look like? This is the classic, you know, sort of almost consulting leading question, which is, okay, how, how will you know when you're successful? But, but how does that compare to not just what you're doing before, but sometimes people anchor to the old way. Right. But it's helpful, right back to the consultant, like, like wh where do you want to be? And if you're entering a new market or a new business line, like who's best in class? I think that's where the analysts are pretty good at that. You know, you talk to Gartner, you talk to Forrester, IDC, right. they're pretty good at telling you like this company's best in class and then figure out how do you benchmark against them. But not everybody immediately thinks about that because maybe the best benchmark is not in your industry, right. which is often interesting, right? Sort of like, hey, manufacturing company, actually look at the airlines. They do this really well. They'd be like, huh? But then they realize that actually they're, they're, they have more in common than they think. And, and has, has composable commerce in general, has it made, has it made you, you, your life easier in terms of like go to market, like shorter or longer sales cycle? Has it made the conversations more complicated because now there are more stakeholders involved and now you need to sell to the order management guys and, 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 or, or, or you as a vendor, you know, selling order management technology or commerce technology, you need to sell to sales and marketing, then, you know, there is maybe Trevi Pay. So, to the so I think there's elements of both. I mean, there, there's more um, buying centers, but already our, our sales discussions are pretty complex, right? We, we could be talking to somebody in finance, somebody in sales, somebody in digital transformation, um, somebody on the tech side. So already we're talking to multiple stakeholders. Mm -hmm. I think the benefit is being able to more readily with our APIs, you know, to participate in more combinations mm -hmm. with composable commerce, which is why this is one of my focus areas yeah. is, you know, to have more relationships where there's a mutual customer and then the architecture, the style of doing business, it makes it, you know, shorter and easier to start to work together and it's partly a product thing but also I just think it makes it it just makes it easier to put together solutions together right, right. and mix and match right and this is back to the the Lego set right you know you, you get together with with your friend and they've got a Lego set I mean you don't have to like describe what the bricks should look like you just start snapping them together and now you've got one big 
Lego set. Right. So I think that that's a huge benefit just in terms of experimentation, but time to value. And and where do you see composable cameras going? Like you know, it's a relatively new, right? So yes. like two three years, I think. So so fast forward a couple of years from now. So where do you see composable cameras? Is it is it just widely adopted? Do you see this maybe just being an interim? stay towards something else uh so so what is what is your perspective so i mean i i think that there's still some maturing that has to happen in terms of the ecosystem mm -hmm. i think that um, like any software i mean if i look back at different waves of software there's always been a role of consultancies and service providers to either start it up and to create scale or to be fostering sort of the ecosystem mm -hmm. and i think if there's money to be made right the big consultancies will figure out how to expand a market. So I think what's going to change is the maturing of, back to your question, of more sort of business insights embedded into some of these modules, you know, creating more of an ecosystem of bigger consulting partners with some of the composable providers plus boutique providers like a TreviPay that put together like industry solutions. I'm a big believer in whether you call it industry SaaS or vertical SaaS. Two of my startups were, yeah. you know, industry SaaS solutions. And so if form holds, I'd say the composable will get more industry specific. Mm -hmm. Not that one vendor will just sell one industry solution. Yeah. There's a lot of benefits of bundling in a service technology, you know, credit into something that's specific for retail or specific for semiconductor manufacturing or specific for airlines. I think that that's, that's an interesting future state mm -hmm. is vertical whether it's a vertical addition or specific industry packs mm. i think that's that just makes it more consumable more familiar and every target is in an industry so it's not like you have to guess you're talking to a prospect like clearly they're in an industry or a sub industry and the more you talk the way that they think about it i think it just shortens the path to value no i fully agree i think it's it's over time every industry every vertical gets commoditized right and every kind of set of functionality which in the beginning it might be very sophisticated, very differentiative over time, you know, kind of makes into the commodity set, right? So, yeah, I think industry uh, specific, you know, accelerators or, you know, SaaS, uh, even like SaaS products definitely have a uh, clear, clear future. Here. It also narrows your focus, right? I mean, back to yeah. our ICP, I like to talk about it more in terms of, you know, certain types of manufacturing, like with characteristics or certain types <laughs> of retailers, especially those that are mostly consumer focused, trying to move into mm -hmm. B2B. Of course, they already are, they just don't know it, right? We've, we've done studies where you look at sort of the profile of who's buying from an office supply company or who's buying from a catering company, who's buying from a travel company. It's like, no, 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 we, we're a consumer company. It's like, actually look at the profile and already they're serving business buyers that kind of don't know it. And so I think that's an interesting target where people are sort of hybrid, whether they're B2B to C or they're B2C trying to serve more business buyers. Uh, I think there's some very interesting markets that are relatively untapped, which would be fun for us to partner on. Back to the industry edition or industry focus, the best campaigns I've ever run over whatever 25 years are almost always industry specific or sub industry or sub sub industry. Uh, this is very interesting. I mean, our entire go-to-market internally is organized around industries, so it's not like sliced by geos, as it, it, you know, it, as it often is uh, with, with some other companies. It's like by industry because of our ICP, right? Because we say, hey, you know, if we are selling into 
and, and we have three sectors, manufacturing, services, and, and what Gartner calls trade, right? Yes. Seven, uh, ten industries we focus on, seven would sit in the manufacturing bucket, two in the service, and only one, which is food and groceries, which you would consider to be more of the traditional. Yes. Retail. And only because it's sophisticated enough, there is a very clear definition of what we mean by sophistication. And because of the ICP and companies typically being in the billions of, of dollars of revenue, it just doesn't make sense to not have an not industry specific approach, right? Because you need to, the conversation you would have with a marketeer in manufacturing automotive versus a salesperson in manufacturing uh, industrial goods, let's say a CPG versus, you know, uh, a CFO in services hospitality are so different. If you don't speak the customer's language, if you don't know the challenges, if you don't understand the business objectives and how they are different between these industries, you can't have a meaningful conversation and you will always end up just pitching or, on or features and or you're faking it, right? And oh, this, yeah. this is the worst thing. Is is um, <laughs> at an, at another company earlier in my career, we were thinking about um, getting into. We had done some work with insurance companies, mm -hmm. um, more on the the payer side, and we were thinking about like medical devices and going down kind of more into the, you know, I guess the provider side of insurance. And we got on with one of the analysts and. Their first question was, so how many MDs do you have on your team? Mm -hmm. yeah. And we're sort of like, uh-oh, you know, put the phone on mute. It's a great example of there's certain industries that you're either in it yeah. or you're not. This is why this is why we, for example, limit the number of industries. You can't be expert in too many. Like in, in 10 is like the absolute max. max. And even within the 10, we have four, four core industries where we have very deep expertise and the rest is kind of focus where we're building it up. And we're also either having internally or we are borrowing, so to say, the thought leadership from our partners where uh, by, by injecting uh, uh, industry experts, like people with deep, yeah. oh, deep domain expertise, 100%. people who know the events, who know the challenges, who, know, who can help the, you. The, the independent you. consultants, the ones who exactly. were executives exactly. in the space. Exactly. And we rely on them, especially in some of these sectors where like the introduction is very important, right? This is both a function of the market. Like yeah. you need to be in the community to do business. You need to be in the community. To, uh, yeah, because, you know, if you want to have a, and I think this is where we agree uh, upon. If you if you want to have a consultative kind of you know go to market, if you want to be perceived as a value add partner and not as a vendor, then you know you need to be relevant. This is simple, as, and and relevance is is often even decoupled from the sales process, right? You can be relevant. I was just speaking to someone from our team yesterday. I said, look, you know, relevance is when you are having conversation during a dinner with someone, and even if there is no buying intent yet, right? You are still perceived as a, a valuable you know, partner and someone goes away and says, hey, you know, I spoke to Alan yesterday and, you know, he understands our industry, he understands our challenges, he had some great ideas, he connected me with two other people, right? And some, and, and, and maybe one day, you know, there will be an intent and there will be a relevance in terms of like buying. But you've established that, yeah. that connection. But you, exactly. You need to establish this like well, well so, in advance. So this is very consultative, right? Back at McKinsey, yeah. we would say you don't sell, you have conversations, which mm -hmm. sounds kind of silly, but it's, it's the whole point, right? Exactly. Which is having that dinner, talking about a study, talking about common needs, maybe they're not quite in market, but they're going to start using you as a resource so that when they are in market. Yeah. So there's that benefit. The other thing back to industry, and this is why I love account, you know, ABM account-based marketing, fancy name for doing research on companies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but as a, somebody who spent time doing market research, the discipline to be really focused and to identify not all the companies in that sub-industry and if manufacturing is perfect, right, just sort of go down the list or in 
Um, my perfect example, this is from one of my other companies, like say you're selling to CPG, mm -hmm. you start to break down all the sub-industries. So fast-moving CPG, food and beverage, you're like going down the, yeah. the list, functional beverages, kombucha. In one of my companies, we did ABM, two kombucha companies, and there's 114 of them yeah. in North America at that time. Right. And so I still tell my team about like the kombucha test is like how narrow we're, how narrow do we need to go? Like think of the kombucha test, 114 ultimate, you know, addressable market companies, of which a third are probably in market in the right size. Okay, about 30, that's right. Right. And, and I think that's the discipline of saying we're not selling to everybody, but there's 30 companies in this sub-industry that probably were a good fit. So let's just go get to know them. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I think it's a good, good example of, uh, you know, something we say internally, right? Also why we use this Compose Outcomes Beyond Technology line. Uh, when, you know, ideally, like, uh, I made this example one day, I said, look, if, if we are having an event, right, and there is a, comp is a customer standing on stage, I, if you think about what they could say about you, right, they could say, we, we ran a vendor selection process and we looked at the different vendors in the market and, you know, we selected Spryker because we have, you know, the most B2B features and the fastest APIs, whatever, right? This is not what I want them to say, sure. right? I would want them to say, look, we looked at different vendors. There were some good companies, some better, some worse, some with more experience than this. But these guys really understood my industry. They really helped me to bring the right partners to the table. They helped me to... Uh, 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 to write the right business probably, case. They understood our vision, right? Our they, vision. They, they helped me to pitch it internally. They helped me to get budget. They helped me to identify the right use case and the right methodology, how to implement it. They helped me to, by bringing the right partners to the table to really get to this outcome. And now fast forward like 12 months from you know, where we have been. And yes, they have a great technology on top of that, but you know, they really helped me to achieve the business objectives. And it's a very different statement from the same you know, possible customer uh, uh, versus the first one, right? But that's also why, you know, as a marketer, I'm trying to shift our storytelling away from how we do things to why we're doing it and then put that in the words of our customers. One of the first things that I did when I joined TreviPay is took down this cool looking picture of the payment network with all the endpoints and replaced it with hero images of some of our clients talking about their challenges. Right. And I think that's, that's more consultative. It's shared interest yeah. in the outcome and also when we're pitching somebody new, we now have at our, at our booth, write a book of customer stories. And the best way to introduce us to say, oh, in this space, here, go to page eight. Here's a story of one of the customers that you probably know. Yeah. And they have a similar challenge, but we're, we've been working with them for 10 years. Yeah. And I think that's, it, it's great to hear this because this, this focus on those outcomes, mm -hmm. but also taking people along on that journey if you're doing digital transformation, it's a journey. That's it's a journey. Take it's a lot. Yeah, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And technology yeah. is part of it. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Like one of my favorite lines, right? right. It's you need it, but you're not going to be successful if you just have a technology provider. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Full stop. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, look, I would want to wrap up with three personal questions. Uh, the first one is: uh, Is there any advice you would want to give to your younger self? So I'm happy that my degrees are in engineering, but I wish I learned earlier to stay close to the money, mm -hmm. right? Is um, you can design the greatest product, but if you don't understand what, you know, the buyer really wants and if they're looking to buy it, I think that's, I mean, from an academic perspective, it's great to have a background in engineering, but also I've told my kids that right. <laughs> yeah. it, it's good to stay close to the money, but really ask customers what they want before designing something that you think they want. Yeah, yeah. And I agree. I, th I think like the general 
engineering, you know, understanding is, is, is great. Like, you know, uh, this is what, what we try to teach our kids as well, that, you know, they're having computer science classes since they are four. Which is amazing. Four right? and five. And, uh, and, and, I, and I said, like, that it's maybe even more relevant than learning foreign languages, right? So because you just start to understand how the world, you know, works. You, you don't have to become a developer, right? Uh, you don't have to become an engineer. It just helps you with kind of processing uh, how the world uh, works and you know, so far so, so far they're doing well they start to ask the right questions and looking at the traffic lights and so so yeah it's it's cool but it helps kids under like ask the why questions exactly. like why why does it work that way well there's a science there exactly exactly um is there any controversial statement uh, or point of view that you have uh especially being a former <laughs> former analyst which which typically other people so I'll, would, I'll go back would, to the topic that everybody's talking about which is ai and I hate to think that it's controversial, but AI is not going to take over the world. AI, in many cases, <laughs> is not going to take your job away. In some cases, it might, but anybody who's sort of convinced that it's the end of the world because the bots are taking over, just like read up on it. Mm -hmm. That's that shouldn't be controversial, but it seems like it's the the media is in love with this idea that the bots are coming and you know go and hide. This yeah. isn't a new thing. But as we said in the prep, right, there, there's more compute and there's more data sets. Yeah. But a lot of this is not a new thing. So I wish people would not be afraid of AI. They should, you know, read up on it, play around with chat GPT, realize that it is kind of a clever parlor trick. But, you know. It's essentially it, a word prediction machine, if you want so, right? So, sure. So <laughs> I mean, it's fun, so, right? So. And, it's, and it's exciting to see what it spits out. But if you're a research person, you realize that, a fatal flaw could be that it doesn't really cite references or makes them up, which is yeah. kind of problematic. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. And um, any final uh, book or blog recommendation that you would be happy to share? So I just reread uh, Start With Why, right? Simon Sinek's book. And at our sales kickoff, one of the first things I presented to Trevi Pay was everybody got a copy of that book. Now, whether they read it or not, I think it's, it's a great read, whether you just go back and refer to you know, that as somewhat of a guide. But if you're doing marketing or doing tech or you're doing business, I don't think you can go wrong if you say, okay, let's think about our purpose again mm -hmm. and let's express that and make sure that we're aligned with, you know, our customer's purpose. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it creates this alignment that we're, we have the same goal. So we're going to help you get to that goal. Mm -hmm. And then you can talk about, you know, the how you do it and mm -hmm. what you do together. Right. But I think people sometimes lose track of that. And so mm -hmm. I, I almost sleep with it under my pillow, right? It, it's that good <laughs> yeah. that you know, if you haven't read it or if, if you haven't read it in a while, yeah, the examples are getting kind of old, but that book still has no, aged great. really well. It's a great, great book. So I, that's my recommendation, I, I, whether I, you I, like Simon Sinek or not, but it, it's good. I, I, I fully agree. It's a great, it's a, it's a must, must read. Ellen, thank you very much for no, what a pleasure. spending the time together. It was a super insightful uh, conversation. Uh, and good luck with Trevi. Awesome. Anytime. Mm -hmm.